Good morning. Thank you for listening to the podcast. It is early morning indeed. Uh, Kind of a rarity for me. This is the Sunday, May 2nd episode of the Polly Guglielmo podcast, and I am recording this on Sunday, May 2nd. It is 6.18 a.m. Hence the sip of coffee you may or may not have just heard me take. And I am sitting in my parents' basement in Conneaut, Ohio. Beautiful Conneaut, Ohio, where uh, we came to visit for the weekend. It is Leo's first time visiting his grandma and grandpa in Ohio since Thanksgiving 2019. That's one of the real effects of this pandemic, man. How sad is that? My mom and dad are so proud to be grandparents. And they just had their grandson visit their home for the first time in a year and a half. Ugh. Rough. Definitely rough. But now that everyone's vaccinated, I think uh, it goes back into the regular, right? I think we'll have to get here m- far more often. You know, it, they, they got to see them once a couple weeks ago. Once they were fully vaccinated, we had them up to Ohio and then, uh, I'm sorry, up to Rochester. And then... Um, you know, and then one, once I think last summer when numbers were down or something, I, I think they came to visit and we all stayed outside. But but nonetheless, you know, here we are finally able to visit like humans again. I'm sitting in my parents' beautiful finished basement, which was one of their pandemic projects. My parents are, they're just not the, um, they're not the Florida type, you know. They, they, they were both retired. They both worked very hard. Uh, my mother was a school teacher, has a nice little retirement. My father worked in a factory, made okay money at the factory. And so, you know, and they're also, they were, um, they were smart about money their whole lives. I mean, they were, they were not necessarily cheap. I mean, my mother would say my father was cheap, but I would say in general, they were not, <laughs> they were not cheap, but they were also not huge spenders. So they, you know, they, they accumulated some money over time. Uh, that's something scares me about myself. Oh God, not that's not where I expected to go with this podcast, but oh, sometimes when that kind of shit comes up, I'm accumulating a lot of assets, and those assets may turn into money. In fact, I mean, in theory, you can look at them and say there's some value, quite a bit of value there, potential financial value there. But shit, as far as actual money, oh my God. Pretty much poured everything into the businesses, either the smartest or the stupidest thing ever. We'll find out. I'll let you know. Give me a few years. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, sorry. You're going to have to do It's so early, you're going to have to deal with me sipping a lot of coffee. Anyway, pandemic project for my parents was this basement. And uh, they're just not the type of people who would move to Florida, you know, because I think that's the move where you're retired, you got a little bit of money in the bank, and now it's time to decide what to do with that money. And plenty of people just decide snowbird. I mean, it seems like that's a pretty, that's a lot, I mean, that's a pretty common thing, right, that people do with their retirement money, is they say, well, we're going to spend January through March every year in Florida or Arizona or South Carolina or wherever. Uh, but my parents just not that type. You know, my parents are um, just not snowbirds. So they, they uh, renovated their basement. And it was and I'm sitting in a, a room right now that is beautiful. It's a beautiful room. And I'm thinking back to what this room used to be. I mean, this is where I used to practice DJing. <laughs> I had my turntable set up down here. This is where I used to... Um, well, when I had parties, this is where the kegs went, <laughs> like you know. And now it's like a really high-end, beautiful little 
extra living room. I don't know. I'm so proud of them. I'm so happy for them. It's awesome. So, anyway, today's podcast is going to be something a little bit more niche, I fear, I think. And that is, uh, it's going to be actually a conversation that I led at a Rochester Rotary lunch between three food manufacturing um, presidents or GMs or plant managers, whatever you want to call it. And isn't that funny calling it a conversation? Because it's occurring to me, because here's the thing. When one person speaks, it is called a presentation. When two people speak, it's typically called an interview because it'll be like somebody asking the other person questions. When four people speak, when you get like three people and then you're going to get a fourth person who's going to ask them questions, well, that's a panel, right? Four, five, six, seven, that's a panel. But when you have just three people, it's weird to call that a panel. So we called it a conversation. So it was a conversation between myself, Joe Pertico of Special Touch Bakery, and Stephanie Ledestri, uh, quite frankly, of... Uh, of Ledestri Foods, which is a company that I look up to very, very much. I look up very much to Special Touch Bakery as well. In fact, the president of School of the Holy Childhood is Donna Didi. <sighs> Love my coffee in the morning. And uh, when I decided to leave radio and go into food manufacturing full-time, the first meeting I had with anybody where I talked about this out loud was with Donna Didi at School of the Holy Childhood, also Special Touch Bakery, where I said, I have this idea. I'm thinking about going into food manufacturing. You seem like the right person to talk to because you're in food manufacturing, but also not an area of food manufacturing on which I'm going to compete in any way because they're a bakery and we do sauces. So it's two very similar things in the sense that it's all food manufacturing, but it's a very different in the sense that neither one of us make anything that the other one would make, right? So anyway, um, and she was, Donna was just so, so great with me. And if you don't remember, Donna uh, worked in media for years and just kind of assured me like, yes, you know, it is, it is not abnormal to get to the point where, and this is not everyone's experience. It's just my experience. And I don't want to put words in Donna's mouth because I don't remember ex the exact words she said that day. So it's not fair for me to to say, to quote her, you know, but, uh, basically she and I talked and she assured me that it's not, it's not abnormal to eventually feel as though you've outgrown something in life. And, um, that when it came specifically to working in media, that she could relate basically is what I'm trying to say that she could relate. And I had, I had just, I had outgrown it. And now as I look at the calendar and I don't know if you did the math on it, but I just did the math on it. Today's May 2nd. May 1st of 2020 was the day that I announced to the world that I was leaving radio and entering food manufacturing. It has now been exactly one year. That's a big deal. Oh God, I've learned a lot in this year. Oh my God. Anyway, what you're going to hear on this podcast for the most part, uh, after I do my monologue, and this monologue is brought to you by Copperleaf Brewing, by the way. No, you did not just hear the first ad in the history of the Polyguglielmo podcast. I will not accept money. I just told Clay, 
because he was such a great guest that I would do some brought to you by Copperleaf Brewing for a little while <laughs> in Pittsburgh. I actually got approached twice this week to do advertising on this podcast. I turned them both down. Clay for Copperleaf asked me. Uh, and then a little law firm out near me in Genesee County also asked me if I would do some advertising on the podcast. And I said, no, this podcast will never become work. But what I did say was, look, if you got some good lawyer stories, I'll have you on as a guest. So if you hear me interview a lawyer in the near future um, uh, in Genesee County, it's the uh, she she I guess she's got some good stories. Because that's what I, then I probed that. I said, you got some good stories? She says, yeah, I got some good stories. So hopefully that'll be a, uh, uh, in the very near future, she'll be a guest. And um, I am going to keep this podcast ad free. Nothing's forever. I don't know. I, you know, I don't want anyone going back and chopping this up, you know, a year from now and saying, you said you'd never play ads. I said I'd never, I said I didn't want to play ads. I don't want to turn this podcast into work because I don't have time for this podcast to become work. This podcast needs to be recorded at 6.27 a.m. on Sunday mornings when I have a little bit of time to sit down with a cup of coffee, right? I cannot be beholden to clients. I cannot be, you know, specking commercials and sending them back and forth. This, This really just has to be fun. This podcast has to be fun. That's the rule. So... For the time being, at least, I still promise you no ads. Anyway, I digress. As I get back to, I look at the calendar and I see that it is, it's Sunday, May 2nd. It's one year later. What a whirlwind. I don't know if I've ever talked about what those couple of days were like. You know, April 30th was a Thursday. Um, I knew pretty well that we were going to be able to close that night on the factory Uh, we had been somewhat close to closing for a good month Uh, i remember at one time in mid-march i even thought it was possible that we were going to close on march 31st on my birthday what a what a a present that would have been but um there's always a little anytime you're doing any big transaction there's always going to be so many little things and quite frankly if i had not been pretty aggressive about pushing forward I, I believe we wouldn't have closed for another couple weeks, even month maybe, just because, you know, the lawyers are just constantly trying to get ironclad everything. And some shit's just not ironclad. I mean, sometimes you just have to tell your lawyer, look, I'm I'm going to just run with that. You know, I'm going to I'm going to risk that. And that's not a and I don't want you to think anything big happened. I'm just trying. I'm, I'm remembering back to the mentality of a year ago and I'm remembering to making a deal to buying someone else's business. Um, you know, there's a little, like, I'll give you, here's an example I'll try to give you because I'm, I'm just trying to think about what I could give you that wouldn't be too, too specific. Um, cause it's probably not fair to the parties involved, but something I can give you just so you can understand what I'm talking about. The type of haggling that happens right at the end of buying a business or transferring or mergers and acquisitions in general. Um, you will take your sale price. And just to make the, the money easy, just to make it all very understandable, we'll just use very round numbers. Let's say you're buying something for a million dollars, okay? The person you're buying it from may get 900000 of those dollars right away. Then 100000 of it goes into a separate account, into an escrow. 
and it sits there for a while while you get in and take over the business that you've just bought. And if there's any skeletons in the closet, if any of the machinery that you're buying turns out to be broken, if anything goes completely haywire, you can dip into that $100,000 to take care of it. It sort of a it sort of protects the buyer. And in our case, and again, these are not the real numbers that were used. I'm just using round numbers. In our case, say we bought this business for a million dollars, a hundred thousand of that goes into escrow. Uh, we wanted it to be a hundred thousand dollars for like two years or something, for like the whole first two years. If we found anything to be in less than perfect working condition, we could draw from that hundred thousand dollars to replace it. And the person we were buying from thought. No, $100,000 is fine, but how about six months? And so that's the type of haggling that happens. And and none of it happens fast, because you might say, well, that doesn't seem like a big deal. I mean, just get on the phone and talk it out. We did. You get on the phone and you talk it out, and then I call my lawyer, and then he calls his lawyer, and then the lawyers bring up, well, what about, what about, what about? <laughs> and then you're like, well, now we got to talk again, because my lawyer brought up four different whatabouts. And he's like, yeah, my lawyer brought up a couple whatabouts too. And there we go. We got to work through that. Anyway, that's just one of the many, many examples. There's truly dozens of examples of just little things that drag that shit out at the end where you're waiting, thinking I'm going to close on Friday. And then three weeks, four weeks, five weeks later, you're still just waiting to close. So anyway, I've gone over all this before, but just a quick refresher was pretty burned out in radio. Uh, for probably a good year and a half, I knew I should leave. For about a year, I was pretty burned out. And for about, uh, f- I guess, six months or so, I was, I was positive I was going to leave. And then for about three months, it was a done deal. I had actually like signed a letter of intent saying that I was leaving, you know. Uh, saying that I was buying this other business. So it was a, a long progression. But at this point, I was within my three months of knowing for a fact that I was leaving. And I was still working my old job. And I was very excited. And I, and I did this other thing where I wrote up a few letters of resignation um, just to blow off steam, you know, like basically letters of recommendation where I was like, and this, and because of this, and because of this, and because of this, I quit, <laughs> right? But like, you can't do that in real life. I mean, you got like, you got to keep it somewhat professional. So I never sent any of those letters. On uh, April thirtieth, I think we finally got word we were going to close. I think we had a pretty good idea we were going to close on April thirtieth. But I'm telling you, up until the day of Thursday, April thirtieth, twenty twenty, we didn't know for sure we were going to close until like that day because we ended up closing last thing. I mean, we ended up closing at like six p.m last thing of the day because you're still just waiting for this form and that form and this guarantee and that letter it needs to be signed by that guy at that department so um take another sip of coffee sorry so anyway so i don't remember exactly what time of day but some point in the day i finally get word yes be here at five o'clock we're gonna close this thing and uh I go, we close, we get a drink. It's a fucking pandemic, so we can't go out for for a celebratory couple of drinks. I remember that was a bummer. 
me and my partner Tom, we were like, God, we should be going out to like a giant steak dinner and like drinks right now, you know? But instead it was just like we took a shot of something and <laughs> like went home, you know? But that was nice too because I got to go home and kind of celebrate with my wife that night and Leo. But still, it would have been a, probably a different night, not in a pandemic. So then the next day was the, the day that I had been looking forward to. Woke up, um, texted my big boss pretty early in the morning, right around, I, I think I remember I had this all set up where I was going to do it all right at 8 a.m. Pretty sure I texted him at like 7.30 saying, I need to talk. It is very important. I will call you at 8. Um, and that was all. Then I proceeded to live through the longest half hour of my life. And I remember sitting there thinking at like, se- you know, then like 20 minutes went by and I looked at the clock and it was only 7.33. <laughs> and I was like, why the hell did I say I'd call him at 8? Why didn't I just say I'd call him right now? What? Like, But I had this all in my head where I was going to go live at 8. And I had this, this whole setup too where I had given an exclusive to the DNC and they had already written this story and the story was going to post at 10 a.m. So I wanted to go to my people that I needed to go with at 8 a.m. Because I'm going, okay, most people need to hear this from me, or at least I made a list of everyone I felt I needed to notify. And I said, okay, all of these people that I need to notify, I want them to hear it from me. I don't want them to hear it from the newspaper or from the DNC or online or social media, whatever. And um, and who knew, and who, who knew like who was going to call me and want to do interviews at that time too. And and it didn't end up being that bad. The DNC did. Channel 10 called me. I think Spectrum called me. Like, it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't like the the, the fucking lead story on the news that night. Not that I thought it was going to be. That's crazy that I would even bring that up. But, like, you know, it was it was just the type of thing where, like, a couple people wanted to call me. I think it was cool. I was very, I was very, uh, I was very flattered by that, that people thought that this was an actual news story that I would be leaving radio. Because, quite frankly, a lot of people who were probably more accomplished than me in radio had left and nobody gave a shit. No media outlets were doing any stories on them, you know? Anyway. um, So 8 o'clock, I call my boss. um, And it occurs to me, like, in that moment, oh, my God, this is so freeing. I, I don't have to care at all all what he thinks about this like for the first time ever i get to talk to this guy and take on the attitude of here's what's let me tell you what's going on you know what i mean there was something so free about that so i just told him it was very respectful professional conversation i just told him i said you know it's been a long time coming i have this opportunity yada yada um this is the part that usually i shouldn't say usually shocks people i guess i uh, I've had probably three people, including my father, say to me, even before my father said this to me, and then afterwards some people said to me, what are you going to do on that phone call if he makes you an offer that you can't refuse? You've just bought this factory, and now your boss is, may offer you something exuberant that you're going to say, oh, I can't refuse this, right? You know what I mean? And... um. I think my father told me that before, because only a few people knew before, right? And then afterwards, I've had a couple people ask me. They said, like, well, what did he do to try to keep you? I can't imagine he wanted you to leave. Here's the answer. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. 
he he did not give two shits and I was leaving. <laughs> it made me realize I was like, oh, maybe I'm not as valuable around here as I think I am. <laughs> no, he he basically also kept it professional. His answer was, uh, look, we will uh, we'll, we'll be in touch. Congratulations. Good to hear. Oh, he did say one thing. He did say, do me a favor. Let's keep this between us for now until I'm able to communicate this. And that was my, my one opportunity to just say, um, sorry, no, there's a story dropping publicly at 10 a.m. And I will spend my time up until 10 a.m. calling key people to let them know personally. And then he rushed me off the phone. And then he was like, okay, all right, yeah, okay, all right, well, that sounds like I've got some work to do, you know, okay, all right, well, good luck, congratulations, we'll be in touch. Boom, done, never talked to him since. There was one text regarding signing my um, exit, my contract, basically. Uh, we had to eventually break my contract because one other thing is, like, when you quit a job, just don't sign anything right then and there. They're very desperate when an employee walks out the door. They really want you signing hold harmless agreements. Don't feel pressured to do that. I think people a lot of times are caught so off guard they'll sign anything in that moment. Just take it with you. You have every right to take that with you if you're ever let go from a job and get it back to them. Um, and I knew that in that moment I'd been coached, you know, I had a lawyer and my lawyer said, don't sign shit, you know, <clears throat> anyway, right after that, I called my direct supervisor and, um, talked it over with him. He was, he was way nicer. He was super sweet. And he said a lot of nice things about how, you know, I had done a great job and this, this seems like a great choice for me and blah, blah, blah. Then I started calling, um, a handful of radio clients because I, I had some great companies that I was endorsing and I wanted the owners of those companies to hear from me and made a few phone calls, same conversation over and over, very positive, very nice. A lot of them even asked me what I suggested they do with their advertising. And I would like anyone in radio that listens to this, and I know some of you do, um, to know that I did say, hey, just keep keep doing it. If it's working, keep doing it, you know? And I think I suggested Deanna or Dale, or I said like, Hey, what, you know, whoever's going to be on the Wii show now in my place, like definitely, you know, pick them, do that. At that time I'd been phased off the Wii show anyway. Uh, in theory, I was still part of it, but you know, when we all went to work from home, they, uh, they had, they sent Deanna home with equipment. They offered to Tulio to go home with equipment. They sent Wii's home with equipment they sent me home with nothing and said, well, don't worry about doing the Wii show anymore. <laughs> like, you know, so <laughs> if they want to know why I walked, <laughs> could be one of the reasons. Um, so then I made a bunch of phone calls to clients of the sauce business. That was the next thing. After a few goodbye phone calls, it had gotten to be about 9 a.m. And that had been my plan. It was like, okay, I have to spend about an hour of saying of doing some goodbye phone calls. And then I need to spend about an hour of doing some hello phone calls. And so I had set up everyone I needed to call all my biggest sauce clients and big clients of the manufacturing facility. And so I started to make all those phone calls from really from nine to 10. And then I drove out to the plant and addressed the guys, right? So I needed to go out there because those guys, um, not to get too detailed, but some of them I think were just finding out for the first time and some new, I don't know exactly what the situation was, but I was uh, basically walked into that plant that day 
and just kind of said, rah, rah, we got this. It's all good. Um, had a little meeting, recorded that podcast, believe it or not, that, that, uh, the pilot podcast, the first ever podcast, not knowing whether or not it was a podcast or the food show, because this was Friday, May 1st. And as of this day, I still didn't know if I was done in radio yet because I had given a two week notice and my boss had said like, he didn't want he, well, I, okay. In fairness, because I know that he, he later did some lying about what I said on that phone call. I remember exactly what I said on that phone call. I said, I am willing to work a two week notice in full disclosure. I don't want to, and I would like for you to figure out how to get me out of here as soon as possible. However, I am prepared to work a full two weeks because I just don't want to leave you you know, in a trench or whatever. I don't want to leave you in a tough spot. And he had said, okay, appreciate that. Right. So I didn't hear yet at this point, this is Friday morning. I didn't know yet what the answer to that was. So I was still planning on having to serve out that two weeks. And so I recorded an episode there, um, thinking that it, it may even air as a food show with the former owner of the plant. Uh, in fact, I had to go back later and edit out references to Wham 1180 and the food show because I recorded it as if it was going to be on the food show. So then more phone calls. Then by that time, the story had dropped. Um, I returned some phone calls. I think I did do at least one TV interview or something. And um, then it started to really get out there. And then my phone started to blow up. And that felt great too, you know, seeing the phone blow up. I mean, anytime you look down at the phone and I think I took a screenshot, I don't remember, but it had been a couple hours since I looked at my phone and I had something like, you know, 18 missed calls and like 68 text messages. And I just remember thinking that's, that's really cool. You know, that made me feel good. But then the next day was Saturday and then it was Sunday and, and, uh, I'll be honest with you guys, the first thing I did, because I knew I was about to, and I was not wrong, I knew I was about to go into one of the hardest years of my life, I took the weekend off. Didn't work that weekend. Came in Monday morning, and and we were off to the races, but took the weekend off. That was the right call now looking back. I remember I was really itching to get in there and do some work, but now that I look back, I'm going, no, that that was the right call. It's definitely the right call to give myself a couple of days there. And that's that. That's how it went. And this past year has been everything. It's been great. It's been terrible. It's been terrifying. It's been exuberant. It's been exciting. It's been adrenaline rush, followed by sudden loss of adrenaline. (laughs) Like, it's just been the most exhilarating year of my life. And quite possibly the greatest learning experience of my life. I always credit my time in Italy as an exchange student when I was 16 as the greatest learning experience of my life because uh, that was an opportunity that I had to fully immerse myself in a new culture and learn it uh, to the best of my ability during that time. This was very similar. This was a year, this has been a year, of immersing myself in a new culture and learning a lot. And where I am now versus where I was a year ago at this time in terms of what I know about this business is light years of a difference. I have learned a lot. I've grown a lot. I've matured a lot. Um, And I look back 
at this last year and I think about what I knew a year ago and I go, holy cow, that kid knew nothing about what it was going to be like to run this business. And the only thing I wonder is, what's that going to be like a year from now? I have to believe a year from now. I'll look back at me today and think this guy knows nothing about what it's like to run that business. I think what it is is maybe, and I don't know, I don't know, I have a hard time talking good about myself, but maybe I understood the general pillars of what it was to do what we do. I understood the general pillars you need to have in place in order to be in food manufacturing and run a business. Um, but I also had a lot of stuff I didn't understand. A lot of stuff I'm still learning. Had to get tougher, quite frankly. I'd say my, my most recent lesson is get a little tougher. You know, get tough. I mean, I, I don't want to go too in detail with any of this, but I have a heart and, and I do sympathize and empathize sometimes with people. And people will tell you sob stories to try to get a better deal out of you. Sorry, my coffee's getting cold. And, um, you know, learning how to deal with that, potentially, has been a, a recent thing that I've learned a lot about. Not being apologetic for getting paid for what we deserve to get paid for has been a recent lesson. There's lots of lessons. Another lesson. Don't drop 275 gallons of oil in the middle of a warehouse. <laughs> yes, I think I did. I did say, right? I, that story finally came out when I had Eddie Harris from Boss Sauce on the podcast because he told me he once dropped 300 gallons of Boss Sauce on the, uh, on the ground at his factory, and so it made me feel comfortable enough to say, well, I dropped 275 gallons of oil once. Also hit my garage door with a forklift once. Mm-hmm. So... Some lessons that are a little harder to learn and some that are easier. Maybe don't drop the oil. That's an easy lesson, right? Okay. Let's hear from some far more experienced food manufacturers. What do you say? A conversation via Rochester Rotary between myself, Stephanie Ledestri, and Joe Pertiga. Enjoy. folks it is now time for our featured program of the day we have three very impressive panelists with us today discussing the area of food manufacturing and co-packing arrangements this discussion will be led by our very own uh, panelist and rotary vice president paulie guglielmo but let me first introduce to you our panelists and of course ladies first 
We have with us today, Stephanie Ledestri. She's the co-CEO of Ledestri Food and Drink. Stephanie returned to her family company 11 years ago with the intention of finding space in the liquor industry for Ledestri Spirits. At that time, as vice president of sales and marketing, her team brought Recipe 21 to the beer distribution network and created a 250,000 case brand with double digit growth year over year since 2011. Never losing her enthusiasm for the spirits brands, four years ago, Stephanie accepted the role of co-president and today is the co-CEO along with her brother, John. Stephanie has worked with her executive team to modernize the systems and practices of a company that continues to grow based on a reputation for true partnerships, quality, and speed to market. Since assuming the leadership responsibilities at Ledestri, Stephanie embraces the fact there is nothing static about today's business environment. I think we can all agree with that. And she's created a vision for the company that both drives change and reinforces the importance of living Ledestri values. In 2020, Stephanie was named Rochester Business Journal's Executive of the Year in Technology and Manufacturing, recognizing her exemplary corporate and community leadership. In addition to her corporate work, uh, she knows something about camps. She's co-chair of one of the most successful fundraising events for the Hole in the Wall Gang uh, camp down in, uh, with a Big Apple Bash in New York City. And that camp, as many of you know, provides year-round services to children, families, and siblings who are coping with serious illnesses and Ledestri Food and Drink's number one philanthropic partner is the Hole in the Wall Gang. As an individual who leads from both her head and her heart, Stephanie shows up with a commitment to nourish her employees who in turn nourish the workplace and business, which enables the Ledestri family to continue nourishing the communities they exist in. Welcome, Stephanie. We also have Joe Perdico. He's the Director of Operations at Special Touch Bakery. With an extensive background in manufacturing, Joe understands what it takes to run a productive commercial bakery operation. From the bakery's inception, he has played an important role preparing the bakery for growth and success. From securing the bakery's top of the line equipment to configuring and expanding it so that it meets the needs of the bakery staff and the requirements of their customers. Day to day, Joe works closely with the bakery team, providing guidance, training and support. And he works to ensure a positive and rewarding working environment and most importantly, customer satisfaction. Joe, thank you for joining us. And finally, we have our own Rochester Rotary Board member and Vice President of Events, Paul Guglielmo. He happens to also be the owner in his spare time of Craft Cannery and Guglielmo Sauce. Craft Cannery is the local sauce co-pack facility specializing in specialty batch operations and productions. He's also the owner of his own world famous, my words, pasta sauce brand, Guglielmo Sauce, which is distributed through the Northeast in major chains like Wegmans, Whole Foods, Price Chopper, Tops, and of course, here locally in mom and pop shops throughout Rochester. You recognize his voice because he had a 15 year career in local media before deciding to fully commit to his business, running his plant full time. He is also fully committed and married to the love of his life, Ryan. Together, they have a two and a half year old son named Leo, who's the light of their lives. Paulie's from Northeast Ohio, and he's been in Rochester now for 14 years. And he is a former Rotary Exchange student where he went to Italy. And he joined Rochester Rotary in 2017 and has been on our board helping us lead this since 2019. In addition to his service as a Rotarian, Paulie serves on the board of directors, if you folks did not know, for Big Brothers Big Sisters of Greater Rochester, the United Way Campaign Cabinet, the Genesee County BOCES Culinary Program Board of Advisors, and the John Carroll University Rochester Alumni Chapter Board. 
And yes, he still makes his own sauce on his stovetops on Sundays. That's our panel, folks. How about a warm Rochester Rotary welcome for these three as I pass it over to Pauly to lead today's discussion. Pauly? Oh, my goodness. I uh, committed the ultimate sin. I bought a new microphone for this occasion, and I don't even know if it works. Are you hearing me right now? Yes, it, you sound great. Does it sound okay? Yeah. I literally didn't test it. I plugged it in. I went, oh, crap. So for my fellow mood food manufacturers in the room, let me tell you about a little bit about today. Production manager called off. USDA showed up for pre-op, which for those of you who don't know, is they show up like a SWAT team at 7 a.m. and inspect everything with flashlights. And then the state showed up all in the same day, all around the same time. But does anyone see that A right there? Can I get a hell yeah? Can I get a hell yeah? Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so I'm two inspections deep and it's only 1230 so far. Let's do this, darn it. Let's do this. <laughs> um, I want to start off with talking about uh, background. Just a, just a quick second on background before we get to current climate. Uh, Stephanie, I want to let you go first and talk about uh, how you came to be at Ledestri because the journey isn't quite as obvious as people might think. There was a moment where you maybe weren't going to be with Ledestri, right? You had a different career aspiration at one point. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about how you ended up in the chair that you sit in today? Polly, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> I actually could have ended up in a in a, a lot of different places throughout my career. I've always been one of those people who um, doesn't so much have a plan uh, for my own personal career. And I just kind of follow uh, where it takes me. And I recognize opportunities in front of me and I cannot stand waking up without taking advantage of the growth from the day before and applying it to that day and figuring out how to apply it to the days that follow. And uh, it led me here. So yeah, I can, I can give you a little bit about my background. Um, this could take, I mean, I could spend four hours on this, but I'll try to spend about 40 seconds instead. Um, I think I always knew that business is with a combination of psychology um, and being in a helping profession or at least volunteering were all things that needed to be part of my life. And um, it wasn't really clear to me how to accomplish all of that. So like I said, I just started wherever I started. So I started with business school. That seemed the most obvious thing to do, given I grew up with a family business surrounding me all the time. I quickly realized that that wasn't going to be enough. And I tacked on a psychology degree. And then I got into social services and I worked with Alzheimer's patients and teen moms. And I did all sorts of um, volunteer work with the Hole in the Wall Game Camp. And I loved all of that. Um, but I've also been a person who wants a lot of flexibility in my life. So fast forward a few years, I decided to get my master's degree in speech and hearing sciences so that I could work for, with um, in a healthcare system with dysphagia, which is feeding and swallowing disorders. My brother always says, this is the most shocking thing about me. Um, he doesn't understand how I ended up doing that, but I loved it and I did it for seven years and I 
kind of wrote my own ticket um, in a lot of ways doing that. Um, it was entrepreneurial and it was clinical and, and it was a lot of things that were very different than anybody in my family was doing. So that was interesting to me too. When I was done with that, I briefly went into pharmaceutical sales. Honest to God, it was 100% just to be around people who were young because I was working in uh, nursing homes for so long at that point. So I was like, I just need to be around 30 year olds. I was turning 30 that year. So I did that for a little while. My father bought our business in that same year. He was trying to recruit me to go over. And I said, I don't know what I have to offer the company right now outside of like knowing some R&D and quality assurance type work, which is not what I wanted to do for a career. So I said, let me learn business at a big corporation, GlaxoSmithKline, at least get my feet wet in sales, and then I'll come over to the company and figure out how I fit in. So I did that. And I worked as the co-pack sort of account manager and liaison to Kraft Heinz, at the time Heinz. Uh, we make Classico pasta sauce, Frito, um, Lay, we make Tostitos. And then I did some smaller scale stuff too um, with some other customers. Um, Mario's uh, Via Bruzzi was probably my most rigorous account and it was local and obviously by far the smallest, but um, that's just how it works, right? And so, um, I did that for a couple of years and I realized, um, okay, I, I felt like I got my crash course and God forbid something happened to my dad, I would know who's who and what was what and I'd be able to, you know, jump in and, and, and do what needed to be done. And that was the most important thing for our family at that point. So I moved to Atlanta, I wanted somewhere warmer, sunnier, I um, wanted a little bit of a bigger city. And uh, I wanted to work for myself again. So I opened up clothing boutiques. I had three at one point, um, couldn't have enjoyed it more, um, but my father lured me back um, with this one statement I will never forget. It was the clincher because it was like a six month courtship, you know, him trying to get me back. Cause I never forgot the first time he lured me in he said, I said, there's two things I don't want, a really small cube and to be sitting in front of a computer doing spreadsheets all day. And sure enough, that's exactly what a co-pack manager does when they're the liaison between some of your biggest customers and um, your manufacturing facility. It's a lot of crunching numbers. It's sometime on the floor and sometimes with customers, but I basically was stuck in a little cube crunching numbers and doing spreadsheets. So I said, I'll never forget it. You did me wrong once. I'm not coming back doing that. This is what I want to do. And um, finally, one day he said to me, Stephanie, you have to come back. You have to get our spirits division going. It's a very fashionable industry. <laughs> and I said, fine, I will come back and, and, and see what we can do together. And um, it's been awesome. It's been totally fantastic. I've done a million different things since I came back. Um, I've learned a ton. I feel like I've given a ton and um, it's a great fit uh, for me. My brother is an excellent co-CEO. We complement each other really well. And our family is, um, you know, always first. And so family business is a strange place to be for any of you who are in it. Probably a lot of you are part of that. Um, and so you know, we do it together. We want to choke each other and we want to hug each other. It depends on where our hands land on any given day. And um, yeah, that's how I got here. That's that's kind of the synopsis of, of how I got here. Great. 
Great. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Joe, how about you? How did you come to Special Touch Bakery? Oh, yeah, the mute. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Well, my, my path was not linear as well. Um, I started uh, my career uh, as a U.S. Air Force veteran, spent four years in the service, and uh, came out really unsure about what I wanted to do for a career. Um, I, I actually was... Uh, took a two-year school and got a degree in electronics and began repairing uh, manufacturing equipment. And uh, that was uh, how I launched myself into manufacturing. I started as a service technician, um, really had a passion for people and uh, started pushing myself towards management positions. Uh, I went back to college, got a bachelor's, got a master's, and slowly worked my way up the ladder uh, in the manufacturing industry, uh, starting at uh, Ghoul's Pumps in Seneca Falls, which is now ITT Industries, and um, moved around a little bit. Um, about 11 years ago, I applied for a job at a company called Unistel in uh, Rochester, New York, that did spices and seasoning uh, packaging operation uh, that also was a nonprofit that employed people with disabilities. I'd never been exposed to anything like that before. Uh, I walked on the floor. Um, I was greeted with uh, amazing warmth and uh, I absolutely fell in love with the idea of uh, working with individuals with disabilities. And I thought the manufacturing experience that I had um, could really help an organization like that succeed. And so I left my current position and went there and uh, it, it, was a, it was an amazing experience. And uh, about five years, six years ago, a couple of your Rotarians uh, connected me, Kathleen Pringle and Donna Didi. Um, Donna was the CEO at Holy Childhood and um, Kathleen was doing some headhunting for me. And um, I heard about the opportunity of possibly taking the Special Touch Bakery from a small school kitchen at Holy Childhood out into the community. And uh, it, was, it was just an amazing thing that I, I saw an opportunity uh, that I didn't think I'd ever get. And that's to basically start from ground zero on a new operation, uh, pick all the employees, all the equipment, set up the operation, and then run it afterwards all with a nonprofit that was working with individuals with disabilities. So um, that was five years ago and, and here we are today. Great. Good stuff. Yeah. Round of applause for sure. Joe, let me stick with you. Let's get into uh, let's get into co-packing or food manufacturing during a pandemic um, early on, or even to this day, can you give us an example of a pivot that you had to make that, um, had to, had to happen on the fly. So, sometimes things in our business, it's hard for things to happen on the fly. Right. But I think we've all been there where something has to happen tomorrow or actually more accurately yesterday. And we have to figure it out. Can you give a, an example maybe of a, of a pivot? Absolutely. Um, uh, during the pandemic, what we found, uh, in our business is that many of our competitors were unable to deliver. Uh, the, the food industry really boomed and uh, business started to go up and demand started to increase. And all of a sudden, we've got some phone calls from folks that were out of product 
and they were out of product on things that we didn't offer. So we had, um, even though we do, uh, we have a large variety of pies that we offer, there were some things that we didn't offer, but we had some large accounts come to us and say, hey, we are out of product. Can you make this pie? Can you make this pie with this ingredient? Uh, we had to make some, uh, some quick adjustments. Uh, these were large orders. We're talking about truckload orders of, of product. But, um, you know, it, it was a great opportunity for our team to show uh, how nimble we can be, how flexible we can be, and uh, how quickly we can react. And we were able to uh, develop some quick R&D, uh, get some samples out, uh, gather the business in, and then ship out truckloads of business over the holidays last, uh, last October, November. Stephanie, you shared a story once, I think, on a, uh, in a conversation that we were in about hand sanitizer. Right. You got you guys had to figure that out in a matter of days. Um, I'm looking for any pivot story you want to share. I, you don't if it's the hand sanitizer one, that's great. I think it's a good example. But can you give us an example of pivoting? And at such a large company like Ledestri, it seems like turning because like that's the one thing I have going for me as a small facility is I, I can turn on a dime. Right. It's one of the very, very few advantages we have, it seems like that's probably more difficult for you, or maybe I'm wrong, correct me, but can you give an example of a pivot that you guys had to make during the pandemic? Oh yeah, the mute thing, yeah. Oops, <laughs> that mute thing gets me every time. Um, there's so many to choose from. I'll, I'll tell you about one I actually um, just, it's very recent. So over the last um, month and a half, well, for anybody who doesn't know, we make White Claw. And for anybody who's unclear as to white, what White Claw is, it's like a like a sleek can of, it's like the old Zima. If anybody remembers Zima, it's like the oh, new yeah. age Zima. And uh, so it's an alcoholic beverage made with malt brew. There's been a can sh aluminum shortage throughout the country, as, as many people know. And so these cans are extremely difficult to get your hands on. Running our production line is how we make money. So if the cans don't show up, it's the only thing we run on this one particular line, which is our basically our workhorse for our um, spirits facility. So we had to pivot and figure out how to actually make enough room in our facilities to stage 750,000 cases worth of cans every month so that we could make sure that the production line would run every month. Because in the one month that it didn't, it was like holy hell looking at the financials. Um, it's not cheap, you know, imagine that. I mean, that's just a whole other conversation. Um, but yeah, that was, that was a recent and significant pivot that we had to make in order to manage the uh, aluminum shortage. What about, you know, increased demand? Joe mentioned it. It certainly happened to us. It was, you know, these are, these are items that are in demand anyway, liquor, pasta sauce. Yeah. You know, yeah, but it, all of a sudden it goes it goes from regular demand to all of a sudden everybody wants everything. And as I mentioned already, our clients, they always need it when they always need it yesterday. Right. Um, what about handling increased demand, client expectations? Everybody's saying, you don't understand. I need my thing yesterday. Right. Yeah. 
how do you how how did you manage your way through that? That nightmare was interesting. So yeah, everybody, literally everybody had increased demand. Didn't matter who they were, spirits, pasta sauce, all of it. And then of course, there's always the human pressure too. In the early days, when the shelves were empty of, of pasta sauce, and so many people were pan- panicking um, because they'd go to stores and shelves were empty. So from a personal perspective, I was super motivated to just try to help fill shelves. But yeah, from a business perspective, we had to figure out how do we manage all of this excess demand? And um, our, our lines um, are pretty much at capacity. Um, we're in the middle of COVID, we actually have a ton of capital projects going on to unlock additional capacity, which was planned prior to. So not only do we have increased demand, but we have planned shutdowns for like three weeks at a time at different facilities and managing how, how do we do this shutdown so that we can unlock more capacity so that we can give people what they want eventually. But in the short term, everybody was so worried um, about losing their shelf space that they wanted us to build extra um, security stock, you know, in addition to everything else. So honestly, what we had to do was figure out who we were going to lock arms with from a customer perspective. And we had to shed a bunch of customers. We had to say either we're going to choose who we're going to service completely or, or the world is going to choose it for us. Right. Um, so we made those choices and we had difficult conversations with some of the customers that had lower volume and, uh, we serviced everybody. We just had to plan to service and, and come through on it. And thank goodness we have. Girl, next time you got to shed some customers. (laughs) (laughs) Trust me. I tell all of them about you. (laughs) <laughs> Joey, same thing. You already mentioned the, uh, the on demand, the, the increased demand, all of a sudden, everybody, they need it yesterday. So everything I said to Stephanie, right? You've dealt with it. I dealt with it. How did you in real time deal with, oh, we have to make quadruple the amount of pies that we were planning to make today? Well, the biggest difference between us and, and their problems is that we are only in business for four years. So this was an opportunity for us to to establish ourselves in the marketplace, show that we could deliver on time. Uh, we certainly put, uh, put our production facility to the test. Uh, I can recall many times during the holiday season where we had trucks in, in the bay and they were being loaded. And at the same time, we were still packaging the items that were going on there. So <laughs> it was, just it, we, couldn't, we couldn't get any more just in time than we were, but, but it, was, it was a great test for us to be able to show uh, ourselves as well as our, our potential customers and our current customers, uh, how we could deliver under some uh, difficult circumstances. We were getting orders uh, last minute. Uh, I need this. I'm empty. I have no nothing on my shelves. And um, I can tell you that we were able to deliver everything, everything that we promised on time. Uh, it wasn't always easy. Uh, I, I can tell you that the staff here worked a lot of overtime, but uh, that, that's what we're here for. We, we being in the food industry, you know that these opportunities come and you want to seize them when they do. And, and we were able to do so. I love, I love the, 
getting things labeled as they're supposed to be on the, we've definitely had a few it's 6 AM. That track's going to be here at 7 AM. We still need to get it labeled. <laughs> like we've had a few fire drills ourselves over here. Um, by the way, throw your questions in the chat because we've only got about eight or nine minutes here left. And I do want to weave in some of your questions. So go ahead and throw your questions in the chat for Joe or for Stephanie. Um, let me ask you guys, a, this is a tough one. And I was honestly, I was kind of considering not asking this, but I think I'm just going to ask it because, you know, it is what it is. This, uh, there, there's some people who have not been so fortunate in this economy, right? Look at, the, look at our cousins in the restaurant business. That's the food business. This is crushing them, right? We all have businesses that are being crushed right now. And meanwhile, we are lucky or blessed or whatever you want to say. It's hard to even say these words out loud. We're lucky enough to be in businesses where, de where demand went up in a pandemic. Um, how do you deal with, I don't know if the word is guilt. It might not be, I feel guilt. And that might just be my heart, my brain. That might be the wrong word. Joe, have you dealt at all with the emotion of running a business that is going up while many others are going down. Does that weigh on you at all? Is that just me? Am I crazy? I don't know. No, we do. It, it does weigh on us because many of our customers are restaurant owners. We've had a huge drop in our food service portion of our business. And we've seen many of the places that uh, were with us uh, from our early days close down or, or no longer carry our products because they just have limited what they can offer. They're only doing takeout. Uh, and we, it, it does weigh on us. And uh, fortunately, it's the retail business that's really driven us back up. I think that uh, food service is going to take some time. And uh, I don't think everyone will come back from it. But it, absolutely, um, you know, I know our sales folks who have worked intimately with these folks for years uh, have absolutely been impact, impacted. And, and it, it saddens us when one of the places that has been carrying our products uh, religiously uh, closes down. Absolutely. Stephanie, am I just, am I just being a rookie? Am I being too soft? I mean, do you experience anything like what I described or, or what? Um, I want to say, yeah, I don't know if I would describe it exactly as guilt. Um, it was concern, actually, more than guilt from from my perspective or how I felt it. Um, very early stages of COVID, especially because um, I I definitely felt like I saw all of it coming. Right, I was like, oh no. I can see where this is going, mm -hmm. um, and it was very concerning. So. Um, I, we really quickly decided that we were going to go to some key local restaurants that are very close to our facilities in all of the states that we're in and support them as best we could by buying over the course of, you know, amongst all of the states, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of gift cards that we could give to our employees. Um, so we didn't help everybody, but we helped our neighborhoods that, you know, wherever our employees went for lunch most, we picked that spot and we said, give me $50,000 worth of gift cards like every month for like four or five months straight before the PPP was announced. Um, 
before people knew if they were going to be getting stuff, you know, when, when the panic was really still there. Um, so yeah, we, it, I was very concerned and, and honestly, I, I still am and not just for the restaurants, but for the manufacturing facilities as well. Um, I think one thing that a lot of folks are not quite as clear on is, is I would love for the people to be is that we're struggling big time. Uh, regardless of the demand that we have, the consumer demand, um, staffing our facilities right now is close to impossible. Our turnover has more than doubled, um, which means you know training people and getting the same efficiency out of groups is impossible. Um, and it's we don't really see a light at the end of the tunnel quite yet. People are not answering the phone. They're not showing up. Our, the temp agencies that we work with can't get people to show up, nor can we to any job fairs. We used to get, you know, throw a three, four hour job fair and get 50 people to show up and get 20 good candidates to start working the following week. Now we get three over the course of four hours. Yeah. It's insane. So um, there's a lot of struggle and companies like ours, you know, didn't get any of the PPP, um, you know, didn't get any government aid. And then on top of it, no, and I'm not saying we should have, I'm just saying like, there's, there's also, um, you know, hardship in trying to figure out, well, how do you keep your production line running when you have all this excess turnover, you can't get people to show up at job fairs, you can't get people to show up at work. And, um, you have all this extra demand and all these capital projects to try to unlock, unlock more capacity and all of that. It, it's, it's a lot, you know, it's a lot to juggle. So um, there's a lot to balance and certainly things need to change for all of the businesses, medium, small, big, all of them to uh, survive this. Yeah. And, and um, not only not finding the people, but also the cost and time commitment to getting somebody trained to step into yeah. a, uh, yeah. to step onto the line or, or whatever is, I think that um, sometimes people don't realize we we're required to put people through a certain amount of training. Yeah. yeah. We've estimated that it costs us about $10,000 per person that turns sure. over and we've doubled our turnover. So yeah. that in and of itself is a huge hardship. Huge. It's rough. Yeah. 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 And then, and, and, and also I think, you know, everybody big, small, all the businesses are also struggling with the CDC guidelines are saying one thing and the state is saying something completely different. The state hasn't updated any of the, um, information on the website, you know, with all the vaccines that have been put out and all of that, you still don't have any changes occurring with regard to behavior. Like, the masks and the social distancing in, in business. I know that, you know, in schools, there was an announcement that people could be three feet apart instead of six feet apart, but none of this has hit the businesses yet. And um, we still have to follow the executive order of the governor. And in manufacturing, it gets extremely hot. And to ask people to be wearing these masks in very hot manufacturing facilities throughout the summer is concerning. Um, for a lot of reasons, and it's not healthy um, for a lot of reasons, people's mental health, physical health, all of it. 
And um, there's, you know, when the CDC is saying it's unnecessary at this point, um, especially if everybody's been vaccinated, um, which at our facility, we actually offered vaccinations on site. Oh, great. Yeah. So we have given everybody the opportunity to to get vaccinated, but we're not seeing any benefit from that happening. Um, I got the okay from uh, P- President Peter to keep going. So I'm going to, we're going to keep this going until about 4 p.m. I think if anyone has to, I'm just kidding. Um, I also got the uh, text from my wife to smile more. So she's uh, <laughs> there. So <laughs> hi, Ryan. I love you. I'll be <laughs> Joe, um, it, can we talk real quick in, uh, about supply chain? I just, I'm, I'm super curious. Did you have any scenarios where you needed something that you never had an issue getting before? that all of a sudden you're picking up the phone saying, I need my order for uh, Friday. And they're going, we got nothing for you, bud. Did that happen to you? I drove halfway across the state two times in the last few months to pick something up that we needed tomorrow. Has that happened to you? Absolutely. Uh, The packaging industry uh, has mostly, uh, that's the biggest impact on our end. Uh, Corrugated uh, has been very challenging. The lead times, got to be extended pretty far. Uh, Same with our cartons. So we're out. What used to be a two or three week lead time is now doubled. And there were times during the holiday where we were doing the same thing. We were actually uh, driving, driving to Buffalo. And uh, we have our own truck out there picking up at three o'clock in the morning so that we could make our production run in the morning so we could get the packaging done and out the door. Um, Raw material wise, we've been okay. Uh, As far as our ingredients, Uh, We've seen uh, no delays there. We've been able to get everything pretty much on time, but the packaging industry has definitely been impacted. There's this guy in um, Dundee, New York. It's, you know, it's Finger Lakes-ish down kind of south. And he uh, has this warehouse of glass and it's a lot of the stuff we use, right? It's all your, it's all your woozies and ring necks and stuff. And he kind of was hoarding glass and he just sells to little clients, little clients. The hardest I've worked in the last year was charming and romancing this guy over the phone to let me drive down to Dundee and fill my van up with glass jars and caps for things. I was, I was n- never more proud than this guy just had like, I, he's ready for the apocalypse or something down there. I don't know. <laughs> Let's go. Some of the questions. Patty Phillips in Rochester to better support your business. Keep it local, question mark. Uh, Joe, is there anything you're not buying locally you wish you could buy locally? No, actually, we, we actually focus on local purchasing. So we, we get uh, all our, almost all our fruits that we can get locally, we get locally. Our apples come from Wolcott. Our flour comes from Penyan. Uh, we, we are very much focused on uh, as much uh, local and New York business as we possibly can. Stephanie, same question. Sorry, I had to unmute. And I was reading my chat, so I didn't hear the question. <laughs> <laughs> the question was that one from Patty Phillips right there. A vendor or service you wish we had in Rochester that you wish you could buy locally. Anything Hi, on Patty. your wish list? Um, I was actually just reading that in the chat, and I was like, hmm, I wonder if what. So, I mean, I will say... Um, fresh basil would be fantastic to be able to buy locally. Um, by the time you ship all of that, and we use a ton of it, by the time you ship all of that here, so much of it actually goes bad. 
because it's basal, it's very fragile, right? So um, making that happen locally is something that we've actually been trying to support um, at our Lee Road uh, Greece campus. Um, we have enough green space there where we could do um, like an indoor or outdoor type basil grow. And uh, it keeps like igniting and then falling off and igniting and falling off. But that would be dreamy. That would be my my wish. I have six garden boxes outside. I got to get you to come out here sometime, Stephanie. I have six <laughs> garden boxes outside my facility where I planted basil and parsley last summer. Unfortunately, no inspectors like that. They don't like that. They really, really hated that. Of course, you would do it officially. I was literally just planting it in my yard and, you know, whatever. Anyway, um, another question from the chat. <laughs> Uh, Andrew, I've heard many other companies struggling to hire right now as well, uh, but not so much increased turnover. Any idea what might be behind that? I, Joe or Stephanie? I'm not Stephanie. That was you originally that was I commenting. Can, I, can you, I don't know if you want to pick that up. Yeah, I can tell you a couple of things that are certainly behind it. One is that um, right at the initial stages of COVID, um, we had planned to decrease our um, temp workforce from it was it was close to 30% temp workforce um, and we had uh, targeted 15%. So we accomplished it but with with um, with infusing so many folks um, and so many people not wanting to work, your choices become much more slim and you end up with people who are sometimes um, harder to train. And so, and they get frustrated, you know, because it's, it's not, it, we don't do, uh, there's not a lot of jobs, believe it or not, in our facility that um, are unskilled. You actually have to have a skill. Um, to work in our organization, 99% of the positions are. So um, I think, you know, trying to do it during COVID with the workforce being what it is and the um, selection of people being shrunk so much and probably even more than that, all of the, um, you know, we've estimated that somebody who typically makes $13 an hour or you know, just under $30,000 a year with all of the incentives and support right now can get over $40,000 an hour not coming to work. So it's hard when you're coming in frustrated because the job isn't as easy as you wanted it to be and you could actually stay home and make more money um, doing you know, whatever you do at home that's not generating a paycheck at a, at a company. So it's, it's, yeah. it's a lot of that. I do see people are um, starting to drop off and we're getting a lot of nice comments. Jane, Vicki, uh, everybody saying um, that it was a good presentation. Uh, but as soon as I see Francis yawn, I know that that means it's time. So I will turn it back over to, uh, I'm just kidding, Francis. Um, <laughs> Stephanie, thank you so much. It's an honor. Anytime I get to be around you, Joe, Craig says I get to come out and, and uh, tour sometimes. So I hope that's okay. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> you guys are great. Thank you so much for doing this. President Peter, I'll turn it back to you. 
Thank you very much, Polly and Stephanie and Joe. That was wonderful. We're, everybody's hanging on. Uh, we need to have you guys come back in a few months and we can talk some more about your, your industry. Um, and maybe by then I'll tell you about my fresh basil farm that I'm going to start this spring.